morning, everybody. This is Alex Dolan. You're listening to Thrill Seekers Radio. We are part of Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, and I'm excited to bring back to the show Steve Berry, the number one international best-selling author of a vast body of work. Um, and we're here to talk about a book that's particularly uh, topical right now: The Bishop's Pawn, the the thirteenth book in the Cotton Malone series, um, and a book that happens to relate to the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King, which happened uh, just this past April 4. Um, Steve, welcome back to the show. Great to be here. Thank you, sir. So there, I want to talk about a few things, but I, I, so Cotton Malone has now been in 13 books, but you're bringing us back to his first case. Yeah, every series always has an origin story at some point along the way, and this was going to be mine. And, it is this fit very well for an origin story. I could work it in and, and I get cotton. It basically starts in the present, comes back 18 years, comes back to the present. So you learn how cotton became cotton alone and how he be, how the Magellan bill started, how it all began. And you learn about that all in the context of this uh, conspiracy that he gets swept up in concerning the, uh, the murder of Martin Luther King. We'll talk a little bit about, um, so it was it, uh, how how long has this been planning in in the works for you? Because were you were you thinking you wanted something that related to Martin Luther King on the fiftieth anniversary, or did it just happen to coincide? No, no, it was intentional. I, I got the idea for the novel about ten years ago. I was listening to the mountaintop speech, which is the speech that Martin Luther King gave on the night before he died, and I listened to the entire speech, and it's quite spooky when you listen to it because it sounds exactly like a man who knows he's about to die. And it gave me an idea for a novel. And I said, I'd like to explore the death of Martin Luther King in the context of Cotton Malone's story. And so I just held it until this year because I figured that this would be a topic of conversation about this time. And sure enough, for the past two or three weeks, it has been a, a huge topic of, of conversation. And I wanted to, uh, to let readers revisit what happened in Memphis in April of 1968. There was an enormous amount of unanswered questions, things that have never been answered, things that never will be answered. And I wanted to take a look at those and get readers thinking about them. And so in, in this version of, of what happened on, on that April 4, uh, you, you're, you're proposing that there's, it goes beyond James Earl Ray as a lone assassin. Well, I have to be careful because I don't want to give away anything from the book, but I will <laughs> okay. say that yeah, you could make a very good argument that Ray did not pull the trigger. You actually could. There's a, there's a lot of good circumstantial evidence that he didn't. But I didn't go there. I didn't want to go there. I wanted to go in another direction. So I made, in my version, Ray pulled the trigger. Now, I wanted to deal with the most important unanswered question that still remains from April 1968. And that is, why was Martin Luther King killed? We have no clue why he was killed. And so I wanted to explore that question. And this novel does explore that in a very shocking and a very unique way. Uh, there's a shocker in the novel. There's a surprise that kind of that comes out of nowhere. I give you no warning, no foreshadowing, no prediction, no nothing. It just happens. And I did that on purpose. So the the shocker is to get you to think and to get you to think more about what happened. And yes, there is a conspiracy in the novel, but it's not a conspiracy like the readers are thinking. Okay. 
I, you know, I, I, I'm fascinated by the, the, the research that you do in history uh, to, to basically ramp up and, and, you know, prepare for your books. Um, and I think when you were on this uh, show before, we were talking about the 14th colony. And, um, and so I, you know, I know that there's a lot of things that are in your books that are, are absolutely true. Um, and where, you know, this is a, I, I'm kind of curious where um, there, you know, the 14th colony is, it's, it feels like it's a fascinating, but it's a great book. I recommend people listening to go read that book too and, and dig into the Cotton Malone series if you haven't. Um, but that's, you know, that you're dealing with a constitutional clause in there that a lot of people might mm-hmm. not be familiar with. And here you're, you're dealing with, uh, you know, one of the most iconic figures of the 20th century and somebody whose, whose uh, death, you know, impacted so many people. Did you feel like you had, did that change you, the way you approached the story? Did you feel like if you told the wrong version of this that there might be some backlash? Or did you feel like more of a duty to represent this figure? Well, I didn't treat this book any different than I treat all of my novels because okay. I'm very respectful. With, I'm very respectful with history in all of the books. I keep the novels about ninety percent as close to history as I possibly can. Now, mine are not historical fiction. Mine are modern day international suspense thrillers that have a historical hook in them. And as I said, I keep the book as close to history as I can. Now, there's about ten percent that has to be tripped up because I'm writing a novel and my job is to entertain you. And so I have to entertain you. And there is a 10% here. The shocker that I told you about is my tripping up of history, but is it completely ludicrous? Who knows? I don't know the answer to that question. I think, Mm. I think it has, I think it has some, some reasonableness to it. Some, some interesting plausibility to it. Uh, the, um, The sad part is we'll never know. We have no way of knowing. We will never know why Martin Luther King was murdered. And I don't call it an assassination because an assassination implies a motive, usually some type of political motive in some respects. We have no evidence of any of that here. We have no clue why Ray pulled the trigger. And if Ray didn't pull the trigger, we have no clue why someone else pulled the trigger. Not a clue. So in in the context of here, I was very careful, though, with King's legacy. I was very respectful of it. I was very respectful of him, and the book ends on a high positive note. Now, I do, I do show King warts and all, because he was a man. He was a human being. He was not a god. He was not a saint, and he would be the first to say that. He had his weaknesses, and those weaknesses were exploited by the FBI, and that is part of the novel, and it's there, and so the reader will, will get to see King uh, you know, warts and all. Well, and that's one of the things I wanted to talk about too. That you you explore the feud between J. Edgar Hoover and Martin Luther King, and uh, and doing the research in both of of these figures and the feud between them. Is there without giving spoilers for the book? Is there anything that you uncovered in your research that would surprise people? Oh gosh, yes, a ton of it. I mean, you're going to be shocked at the extent that the FBI went to destroy people. I mean, the counterintelligence program of the FBI that, that existed from 1957 to 1972, that's what they did for 17 years. They destroyed people. 
They weren't investigating criminals. They weren't prosecuting crimes. They weren't ferrying out bad guys. They were destroying people is what they were doing. And these were people that J. Edgar Hoover perceived to be enemies of him, the FBI, and the country. Whether they were enemies or not, no one has a clue. We only know that Hoover decided they were and destroyed them. There's an example in the novel of an American actress that he went after. It's there. It's true. There's not a word of its false. We know all of this, by the way, because in 1975, the United States Senate investigated the FBI in what's called the Church Committee, and the Church Committee uncovered all of this. And you can read the Church Committee report, and all of this is in there, of, of the abuses they had. So I think the reader will be shocked. I mean, we talk about the FBI today, and we talk about government abuses. They're not even in the league of what happened 50 years ago. They're not even close to what happened 50 years ago. And and I would say even before that, back in the you know in the days of MK Ultra and projects like that. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, it's you know it's interesting because this is, this happened 50 years ago, and yet there's still this. It feels like there's some clandestine aspect to some parts of federal law enforcement. And I, I don't know. Do you do you get a sense that this there's still a legacy of this going on now? Oh, I'm I'm sure there's. There's a lot of covert operations that go on today, terrorism being their number one target. And 50 years ago, it was not terrorism. It was communism that was their number one target. Uh, So are they doing today what happened back with ContelPro? I doubt it. First off, you can't keep a secret today. I mean, there's no way. Nothing's (laughs) ever kept secret. Uh, And once it's out, the entire world knows in a matter of minutes. Uh, it's a different world today than it was then. So I doubt they have something like Con Pro doing what Con Pro did. Now, they may have their counterintelligence programs going after counterterrorism and things like that. But Con Pro really wasn't there to protect the country. Con Pro was there to protect Hoover and to protect the FBI. And it just destroyed people. And it broke every law in the book. And every single person associated with Con Pro today would go to prison including J. Edgar Hoover. Hmm. So at the, at the time, what, so Hoover was sniffing out communists, but that, that wouldn't have been Martin Luther King. What, what was the threshold that you had to cross to become his enemy at the time? Well, well he believed it was. I mean, that's, that's what he used as his justification. Hoover firmly believed that the civil rights movement was being orchestrated by Moscow. And it was being used to undermine the United States government. The problem is, a 1961 FBI internal report that investigated that concluded there was no connection between communism and the civil rights movement. Hoover despised that report and ordered it revised. And it was. It was revised, and its conclusions were changed. We know this because the author of that report testified in 1975 about what happened when he was told to change his report. So... Hoover had his justifications. You got on Hoover's bad side by insulting him or the FBI. And that's what King did. In 1961, he insulted the FBI. He said there were no black agents. He also said the FBI was too cozy with Southern law enforcement. And that's why Southern law enforcement gets away with whatever it gets away with. Hoover took great offense to those comments, great, great offense, tried to speak to King about it, called him to see that set up a meeting. King did not return his phone calls, and Hoover took that as a personal affront. Now, King didn't return the phone calls because he was just bad at returning phone calls. He wasn't trying to be rude or obnoxious or send a message. He was just a bad habit of his. Uh, 
but King took personal, uh, Hoover took personal affront to that. From 1961 on, it was war. By 63, it was total war. From 63 to 68, they, uh, Hoover spent, you know, he had a full-time surveillance of King. Some of it was a law authorized by, by the attorney generals. Some of it, most of it was not. Interesting. So it sounds like the, you know, Hoover attacking, going after Martin Luther King Jr., I, it's, you know, if I'm reading this correctly, he had the report modified to create a connection between the civil rights movement and communism, but he may Correct. not have even believed that himself. That was sort of the formal excuse to somebody to pursue well, a man that he thought was personally, um, who's basically diminishing personally, his power. He had, a, he had a personal hatred of Martin Luther King. He hated him. Now, Hoover was a racist. Right. There's no question he was a racist. There's, that, that's, not even, that's not even open to debate. He was clearly a racist. Uh, but he hated King particularly. And we'll never know why, but we just know that he did. He called him the most notorious liar in America. I mean, imagine the director of the FBI calling a, a, public, a, a public person like who's, who's in, let's just say the, the director of the FBI called the head of the Me Too movement today, the most notorious liar in America. I mean, imagine the outrage we would have today, something like that. Well, in 1963, he got away with it. I mean, he basically got away with it. He did exactly what he did. Hoover hated King, and he sent all of his resources after King. And this is all explored in the novel in great detail. And 90% of what's in the novel is all true. I recreated the, uh, the FBI internal reports. Most of the wording in them are their words. I had to trip up a few because that's the 10% I tripped up. But there's one report in the book dated March 4, 1968, that is particularly chilling. And when you read it, you'll go, that's amazing. I can't believe that someone in the position of director of the FBI would issue a report like this and issue a directive to his, to his people to do this. And that's exactly what happened. This was about a month before King died that this report was issued. And it's reproduced in the novel exactly word for word. Wow. Well, he, one of the, you know, J. Edgar Hoover is such, um, he's, I feel like he's almost sort of a caricature in the, in the public consciousness than, than, than known for who he actually was. But I feel like in, in the time that he was heading the FBI, he cast such a long shadow over the culture of that institution. What, what do you feel like it, it was like to be an agent and serve the FBI under Hoover's you know, under Hoover's oversight. I'm sure the vast majority of the agents loved their career, loved what they were doing and believed they were doing important work. But you did the work that Hoover told you to do. You did what Hoover told you to do. And Hoover had total control over you. Federal uh, FBI agents were exempt from the federal civil service laws. They were subject to hiring and firing solely at the discretion of the director of the FBI. They had no recourse if they were fired. So he had total command over the employment of everyone who worked under him. And that had an effect. There's no question it had an effect. And people did things they shouldn't have done. People broke laws when they shouldn't have broke them. This is not me saying this. This is the church committee saying this in 1975. This was this is when the sweeping reforms came in that changed the FBI and modified things. Today, the director of the FBI can only serve one 10 year term. That's all. Cannot go beyond that. 
Um, you can be fired by the president, as we all well know. We've all seen that recently. But that's the check and the balance that's in there. You can't have an official in there that can't be fired. But he can only serve for 10 years, and that's all. Hoover served 40 years, and he's the perfect example of why you never allow someone to serve that long in office. Mm. So if somebody wanted to read the church report, say one of the folks listening right now, um, what's, how would they look that up? Is it just in a matter just of... Google. Just Google. Yeah, just, yeah, just Google it. You'll find it. Okay. Uh, that's how I found it. Okay. It's a public right. document. It, it's a public document. You can read it and uh, take a look at it. There are many, many books written about it. They spent a long time investigating the FBI and the CIA, and they came back with some sweeping reforms and changes. And it, 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 this is when all this came to light. Now, Hoover had died by then. He died in 1972. And the FBI went through a great upheaval from 72 to, 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 to uh, 75 because Richard Nixon – basically tried to use it as his own personal police force and it was falling apart. I mean, the FBI was in grave trouble. And then when Gerald Ford took over, things began to calm down and it began to get back where it, where it needed to be. So getting back to the central character of this, uh, beyond Cotton Malone, who's the central, central character. Um, so Martin Luther King, um, you, how do you, you know, in, in approaching him, how did you feel about, that you're saying you wrote him warts and all, and yeah, he wasn't a perfect person. But um, no. you know, personally, how did, what, what is your opinion of Martin Luther King as a person and, and the legacy that he left? No one did more for human rights in the 20th century than Martin Luther King. He probably would, would be at the top of the list around the world of what he did. He, he fundamentally altered America. He was now. He didn't do it alone. He'd be the first to say that. I did not. He did not do that alone. But he was the point man. He was the spokesman. He was the voice. And it, and from 1955, 56 to 68 for 12 years, he was the face of the civil rights movement. And he altered this nation. We have the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, the Fair Housing Act. All of these things altered this country. In, in tremendous ways. And it all came thanks to him. Every movement needs a communicator, someone who can speak what needs to be said, where people can understand it and people can feel a, a, an emotional attachment to it. And that's what he did so, so, so well. He was very good at it. Uh, he was not perfect, though. He was a human being. His weakness, he would say, was women. Women was his weakness. There's no question about it. Um, he had he liked to tell dirty jokes. He liked to kid around with the guys. He smoked. He drank. He ate too much. He was a human being. That does not diminish in any way the great accomplishments that he did and, the, and all the things that, that came because of him. And, uh, and so I wanted to present all of that so that we would remember him as he was. <laughs> I think it's a that's a great as we wind down. I think it's a good note to 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 pause on. Um, uh, again, I want to remind everybody we're talking to Steve Barry, who is has a vast body of work, um, and the new book is called The Bishop's Pawn. It was out in April to coincide with uh, April 4, nineteen sixty eight, the fiftieth uh, year anniversary of the the murder of Martin Luther King Jr. and um, I think this is a great time to read about him and um, 
the the beauty and the ugliness of, of what was happening back then. I think it's a, a, a good reminder for us all to, to kind of step back into history and remind ourselves. Um, I'm going to take a quick break to remind you that you are listening to Thrill Seekers Radio. This is part of Authors on the Air. This is a trademark copyrighted podcast solely owned by Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, LLC. And this episode with Steve Berry um, covering the Bishop's Pawn and all other episodes of Thrill Seekers are available uh, through the Authors on the Air website and at www.alexdolan.com. That's www.alexdolan.com. Um, Steve, uh, so if people wanted to, are you currently on book tour? Are you, uh, if, if people, I mean, normally I would just say, hey, how, do, how would people find out more? But it's, you know, good, y- y- this book is being featured out everywhere. So it's it's hard to, Hard to ignore this book, <laughs> but um, are you currently on doing events right now? No, we're all done. I did three weeks on the road. Okay. So I did. I went from uh, I went from the west coast to the east coast. So I've done all that. Uh, people can find out about me and the books, of course, at my website, steveberry.org. So everything's there. But uh, we uh, we went all over, and uh, we got as you, as you said, there was a lot of discussion about it, and there's still more going on. It's not done. The book's still doing very well. That. It did uh, quite well, you know. When it came out, it went to number five on the Times list, so it's done. It's done very well, and hopefully, people will continue to enjoy it. I, I was traveling my share in April, and I was seeing uh, the Bishop's Pawn. Uh, pretty much every bookstore I was going at featured out. So, mm-hmm. congratulations on the new book. Thank you. Um, and I would recommend people read this. Uh, this is also, I think, a great. Uh, place to jump in if you want to like you're saying hear the origin story of your protagonist cotton alone yeah. um and sure. and the thing that i think is great about this series is that each one could be a standalone in my opinion so i feel like you can dive into this without if you're new to the series you know just pick it up read it it's great so uh Steve- yeah, it's, it's, it's the 13th cotton alone book but it reads like the first and you're right they don't have to be read in order you can read them however you'd like um, so, Steve Berry, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Um, congratulations on the Bishop's Pawn, and uh, I can't wait for the next one. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Bye. <laughs>